0: hello everyone and welcome to the marketing times analytics podcast i'm on today with my friend grayson scudder thank you so much grayson for joining me uh do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your background
1: thanks so much excited to be here i'm a media buying supervisor at barclay based out of our home office in kansas city um and uh, a little bit about my background Um, originally from the houston area uh, and I uh, went to school in Mississippi, uh, so graduated from Millsaps College with a degree in communications and in Spanish. Um, and then uh, my senior year, I was fortunate enough to do an internship at a real life ad agency. And uh, uh, shortly after graduation, they ended up hiring me on and uh, brought me on board as a marketing solutions coordinator, um, you know, coordinating the marketing solutions with the best of them. And uh, and from there, uh, just kind of rose up and um Uh, Got a couple of promotions and uh, then uh, was able to make the jump over to Barkley. Wanted to uh, work with a a little bit of a bigger agency and things like that. And I've been here ever since. So uh, thanks so much for having me on.
0: Awesome. Yeah, thanks for for joining. So what got you interested in media buying? How did you even figure out that that was sort of part of the cycle?
1: Yeah, um, so it's going to be a disappointing answer uh, because... I never really had a specific intention to go into media. I think one of the things I really like about this silo of our industry is uh, you really get people from every kind of background, every walk of life. Uh, I've had supervisors and incredibly talented media professionals with degrees and things like interior design, graphic design, history, philosophy, English, French, Spanish. I think I'm actually the Spanish in that. But still, you get the <laughs> point, I think. Uh, you know, it, you get people with a lot of different backgrounds and I was no different. Um, so when I did my internship, I, I got a taste of a little bit of every part of agency life, which was an incredible opportunity. And I, I still didn't really know when I graduated exactly what I wanted to do, uh, but I knew I wanted to work in the space. Uh, I wanted to work in advertising and it just so happened that there was an opening on the media side and so I jumped right into it. I can still recall, I think it was probably a year into uh, my career, when I I finally worked up the bravery to tell my my boss at the time that before I had come to actually be hired on, uh, or really before I did that internship, the only time I'd ever opened Excel was like accidentally while I was moving my way to get to Microsoft Word to write a ten thousand word essay on Don Quixote it just wasn't something that was on my radar. Um, but, uh, but it was something that I really uh, picked up quickly and, uh, and something that I, I really learned to, to enjoy and jump into. So, um, yeah, definitely no, no clear path into uh, media. I think for every, for every person with a marketing degree, there are several others with degrees and just about anything that you can name and different backgrounds and things like that. So.
0: I like that. Um, what can you tell us about the general um, process of media buying, and what does a day to day look like?
1: It's really going to depend uh, really drastically depending on what kind of media you're buying, what kind of campaign you're setting up, or what the client's goals are, and things of that nature. But you can think of the day to day as generally um, every morning logging on, checking your campaign, seeing the performance, making sure you're spending in full, and uh, and prepping all of the changes that you need to make, if you need to make any. I think it's a space that really benefits from less is more. Um, and so you're often making tiny tweaks that have larger implications longer out in the campaign. So just changing one little number, tweaking one little uh, bit or bob here and there can, can really drastically affect the performance of a campaign. So uh, keeping an eye on those changes, making sure that you're taking note of them and, and seeing how they affect the performance of a campaign is a huge part of the day-to-day life of a media buyer. Um, I think the other side of that is, of course, proving out the results. Um, a Media campaign is only as good as uh, you can explain the success uh, or, or is only as good as um, the success metrics are within it. So whatever you're trying to do in the campaign, um, really connecting that to uh, business results or whatever results your client or your team is looking for. Um, so that is another obviously huge part of, of what the day to day looks like. I don't have a great answer for you. If, you know, at 10 a.m. every morning, I, I do this and things like that. I think it's one of the things that uh, myself and many of my colleagues really like about media is no, no two days are the same. Um, yeah. There's always something different, new challenges and, and things of that nature.
0: Definitely. And I'm curious. So when you are looking at analytics for how your campaigns are performing they, how, broadly, how do you arrive at which metrics to follow?
1: oh that's a great question because it's it's not an easy one to answer even for people who have been working in the space for a long time so i think the most important thing um, when it comes to proving out the success is very early on uh one of the very first things that you should do are align on what those success metrics are so we use uh uh acronym in the industry uh kpi key performance indicators uh it's pretty a pretty ubiquitous one um, and really that just refers to what are the metrics that we're looking at to prove the success of a campaign. If my goal of a campaign is just get my brand name out there, then you know, the success metrics might be as simple as how many people saw my ads. Um, sometimes they can be outside studies, uh, third parties that they go in and kind of do surveys and things of that nature to see how the brand perception has, uh, has changed over the course of a campaign. Um, but they can get much more granular as you might imagine. Um, obviously, I think the thing that will jump to most people's minds when they think about proving out the success of an advertising campaign is how many products did I sell? Um, so that obviously is a, a pretty easy through line, or at least it sounds like it. Um, you know, not every single client is going to, you know, sell every product that they have online that you can click on a digital ad, jump right to it and and make a purchase. Um, some of that is... Uh, How do we connect our digital ad campaign to someone walking into a store and buying something? Or how can we show the success of a a campaign through some of the studies that I mentioned, Uh, whether they are more around brand perception or around sales lift, um, things of that nature. So um, I think no one answer to that question. I think very, very generally speaking, uh, a lot of the really important things to look at, obviously, are going to be your delivery metrics. So uh, how many impressions did I serve, uh, as well as unique reach, how many different devices, how many different users did this campaign touch? And that'll give you an idea of the scope and breadth of a campaign. Um, from there, there are a lot of uh, what we call kind of consideration or conversion metrics that you can uh, look into. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as how many people clicked on my ad uh, or the rates of people that clicked my ad that saw my ad, um, things of that nature. So. It really uh, kind of spans any metric that you can think of uh, across the board, but um, no one answered the question, but those are some of the, the things that I think most media buyers will look at. And then, of course, your KPIs, depending on what the success metrics are for the campaign.
0: Got it. And are you the one who is deciding the success metrics or is that a responsibility that lies on the leaders of a marketing organization to sort of decide and then um, to broadcast to all of the media buyers?
1: Yeah. Uh, So every agency is going to handle this differently. But I think generally speaking, uh, my experience with it is the client comes to us and says, this is what I want to do. Here's the the budget that I have. Here's the goal of this campaign. So let's use the, well, we'll use a sales example. Um, so I have this CPG product that gets sold in grocery stores. Uh, it could be as simple as coming to an agency, uh, and saying, this is my product. This is how much budget I have to run. And, and this is what I, you know, my sales goals, uh, or the number of products I want to, to come off the shelf as a result of this, uh, this campaign, um, where it transitions to more of a media buyer, or even a media planner role. Um, I brought up that every agency is going to handle this differently. One of the key places that um, like in my current role at Barkley, uh, we do this a little bit differently than I've seen in other agencies where we actually split the responsibilities of media planners and media buyers. Um, so the planning team is more responsible for identifying those media channels where our audience is going to be. They're helping to identify those consumers and things of that nature. And they have obviously a, a pretty large say in, where the campaign's going to run and and that helps to dictate what those success metrics are um obviously you know it it's a very complicated space uh sometimes we just make up acronyms just to see if anyone's paying attention um and there really are a, an incredible number of terms and and different things that most people coming in even marketing professionals have been in the space for years just aren't familiar with um, so that is a place where i think a media buyer and and the measurement teams or analytics teams uh, associated with them can really start to weigh in and, and show those metrics. Um, you know, it's really a case of uh, leadership, thought leadership in the space uh, at certain points. For example, um, I mentioned uh, click rates. Uh, so the number of people that were served an ad versus uh, how many clicked on it. Uh, it's a very popular metric because it shows a, a level of engagement, but it's really more of, in most cases, a vanity metric. It it is a big number that that makes uh, a lot of business leaders feel really good about their campaigns, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it it drove results. You know, a click is not a sale, for example. So um, that is a case where you know if a, a client says, "I want to do you know sell this amount of product or or do this amount of money in sales," um, and our KPI is going to be CTR, uh, click through rate, then that is a case where as a media buyer, I I often see that we can step in and say well that's great and we can report out on that we can drive that but really if you want to tie this back to your business goals here's the metric we would look at here are the conversions things of that nature so it uh it often is a mix of both a lot of that depends on the rapport with the client and their willingness to to work with the team and, and understand exactly how to prove out the success uh, both within their own walls as well as between the agency and their client
0: Yeah, that makes sense have you ever experienced ad fraud or a lot of engagement that just is not converting how do you how do you identify solve for that how do you deal with it
1: yeah um it's something very ubiquitous in the space and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better as as obviously uh technology and the internet continue to to grow at such a crazy pace um I have been very fortunate that i i have not had a a lot of experience with ibt or or any kind of invalid traffic and the real reason for that is because ad verification providers have become so ubiquitous in the space uh it's something that i've always leveraged uh at, at the agencies that i've worked with in the past so uh fortunately i do always have or i have in the past had kind of a uh, safety net uh, and uh, a way to be able to check that and dynamically uh, shift away from things that that are showing uh, lower performance or a lot of invalid traffic. Um, the performance piece is a part of a media buyer's daily struggle. It's one of the reasons that we are jumping in day to day. It's it's one of the reasons why you want to hire a professional media buyer and not try to run things in-house because it is a lot of upkeep and it's a lot of understanding what performance uh, is acceptable and where you need to start moving away from from other pieces um, or other sites or inventory. So a huge part of what my role is, uh, is buying uh, in the programmatic space. Uh, programmatic is, you can really think of it as, if you see an ad on the open web, uh, I always pick on ESPN.com. If you jump onto an article on ESPN.com, probably one that says, you know, you know U of H destroyed my bracket last night um, you know, something along those lines and you see (laughs) banners all over it, then those banners or, or the videos on that page are programmatic ads. You can think of them as if you encounter an ad online, as you're just browsing the internet, typically, or generally speaking, those are programmatically placed ads and would fall under my purview. Um, so things like that are, very difficult to manage. You know the the internet's a a big place, um, and a lot of what that management looks like is looking at individual inventory pieces. So ESPN is obviously a pretty premium publisher. Everyone knows ESPN. It's it's very uh, well known in the space and gets a lot of good traffic. But if you're not seeing a lot of performance come from uh, that particularly particular inventory source, then that is a case where you would have a media buyer step in and start to put in uh, things like exclusion lists. For example, it's a huge part of our our day to day is going, okay, where are we seeing high performance and where are we seeing low performance and and getting away from those sites that just aren't driving those success metrics, whether they're clicks or or conversions or things of that nature. It's just uh, that's where the micromanaging kind of comes in and being able to say, this is how much I'm willing to spend on a piece of inventory before I consider it not successful, and and we would be better off spending our dollars in a, a either a new place or or elsewhere where we are seeing that performance. So, it's a, definitely a daily uh, part of the daily upkeep and and making sure that a campaign is a, as successful as it possibly can be.
0: You're a media buyer, but you're doing strategy. You're you know you're looking at is this traffic you know aligning with our business goals, and how should we be changing it. I guess to what degree are you a strategist and to what degree are you in the execution layer?
1: It's a good question. It's not one I've, I've gotten very often. I think, um, you know, it's advertising. We all wear a lot of hats. Um, and the, the simple fact is your media buyer typically is going to be the person who is most familiar with a campaign, it, especially in cases where they're the ones that built it. They're the ones that have managed it and, and things of that nature. Um, There is certainly a strategy element to it, but, you know, there are I think the most important thing is to making sure that how you manage a campaign and the strategies that you're putting into place, uh, the lines that you're able to to make those changes are clearly defined at the start of a campaign. So it's something that I have conversations with my uh, account service teams or, or even directly with my clients of. I am not going to come to you uh, every time I want to put a new exclusion list in, mostly because they're big, long spreadsheets and you don't want to read them, uh, as well as because these are daily optimizations or at least weekly optimizations and changes that we're constantly putting in place. A campaign would never be able to run or scale effectively if we were going back for every little uh, approval on every piece and change that we're making within a campaign. Now. You start talking about things that will change the scope of the campaign or or things that will change the way that you define success of a campaign. For example, I'm not going to change my uh, traffic based campaign where I'm optimizing on driving as many clicks as possible to a conversion campaign without telling anybody that's uh, that's a conversation that we're going to have. But I think that. There is a certain element of strategy within it, but we are really, um, the way I think about it is we're strategizing within the confines of the larger media strategy that has already been put in place and defined by the client. Um, Obviously, there's going to be a little bit of wiggle room and, and changes can often happen on campaigns, but it's really a matter of, where does my role stop and where does the role of the larger team and, and the agency or the media entity as a whole uh, come into place and, and start to bring in the client on some of those decisions?
0: Got it. So you're really focusing on putting the, you know, ad copy into the platform. You're actually creating the campaign. You're putting in the budget and, um, you know, launching it. You're, you know, you're pressing the go button. And then you're monitoring you're making adjustments you're you're tweaking optimizing and um a lot of it you you know there is a lot of ownership over the the nuances of execution um Mm -hmm. and then when it comes to strategy that's when you are coming back to the greater team and aligning on you know bigger changes that may need to happen yeah absolutely yeah yeah
1: Definitely. Um, at least for my space, I should call out a digital media buyer, digital being in all caps and bolded, um, because that is really it's a completely different beast than, uh, for example, uh, television or, or billboard, radio, any of the traditional media and things like that. There are really a lot of different processes there, but that is uh, more or less kind of what our, our role is within the space. Definitely.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I'm on the direct marketing team, so mm-hmm. I have a very different uh, understanding of media buying where it's it's like you're, you're talking about relationships with print shops, with paper yeah. suppliers, with planning, mm-hmm. printing. There's a totally different set of tools that are used. It's very old school, nothing like digital. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the cool thing about digital marketing is how quickly you can change things. When you're talking about traditional tactics, it's not geared for micro optimizations and tweaks. Mm -hmm. And take this keyword, like you want to make one change in direct mail, you're going to have to do it in three months. (laughs) That's as soon as you can really make a big change. So, uh, unless you have like programmatic and there's sort of sorts of retrofitting of modern technology in these older tactics, but. It's it's definitely has that legacy slowness, you know, I'm curious, so when you're looking at your the process of digital marketing, how do you think it will evolve in the future? What kind of tools do you think that you'll have, you know, in five, 10 years from now that maybe don't even exist today?
1: I think over the next five to 10 years, you're going to see AI start to really increase in the space. It's going to grow uh, in size and scope. And I think where you're going to see a change in the priority of, of agencies, uh, media shops and things like that is going to be finding the people who are not just understanding of the media, know what the metrics mean, know how to to translate all of that into, uh, into layman's terms, for example. Um, but you're going to find people are uh, looking for agencies will be looking for people that really understand how these AI work. They understand the algorithms, they understand how a user might be targeted, whereas another is not and and being able to define those things and set those parameters in place. A lot of that is happening today. Uh, but I think you'll see that continue to get more, much more prevalent in the space as the technology continues to grow. Um, and, uh, I do say, I do want to say, um, I don't think, uh, and this is based on a lot of articles that I've read, a lot of that doom and gloom uh, that is out in the media right now, um, I don't think we're ever going to see media buying or media planning, for example, go away. Um, I just don't think AI is ever going to be at the level where it's capable to completely replace those roles. Um, The way I kind of think about how an AI and the algorithms that, that help us run these campaigns and the media buyer is, the AI has the advantage of not needing to sleep, not needing to eat, not, not requiring a paycheck. Um, obviously, those are pretty enticing uh, details to keep in mind for for anyone looking for uh, a media buying solution. But it also means that they are only going to be able to put some of the smaller kind of guardrails in place. They're going to be making tiny tweaks, and I kind of refer to those as like micro-optimizations, whereas your media buyer on top is going to come in with what I refer to more as like macro-optimization. So, Um, You know, my my AI within my uh, platforms, like on um, uh, using my DSP, my demand site platform where we buy programmatic media out of um, my AI might be able to say, hey, we're seeing lower performance on this uh, particular site. Uh, We're seeing poor poor performance on my U of H article on ESPN. And uh, and so it will lower the bid factor for that that's where you can have a media buyer come in look at the data and say actually we're not going to see this pickup. we've already served x amount of impressions we're not seeing the results come on top of that i want to exclude it entirely and making some of those judgment calls um i also think that you know selfishly maybe because i'm in uh, been working in the space for for some time and and i i think it's the human element that that it really comes through there is a certain amount of as much as there's data and analytics, there's a little bit of mass psychology involved with, uh, with buying programmatic media or, or really any kind of digital media as well. And sometimes there are judgment calls that, that you need to make uh, that you know, can't necessarily prove out with data and analytics, but you know are, are the right things to do based on historical experience, anecdotes, what have you. Um, but I just don't think that AI is going to be able to get to that point um, where you're going to be able to replace that human element entirely, especially not over the next five to 10 years. Um, so a little bit of a uh, little bit thinking ahead and, and what the future might hold. but. I uh, I guess if you had to sum it up in one line, I think it'll be a lot like today, but a lot smarter too, uh, with a lot more technology and and ways to prove out the the data and analytics and and prove the the success of a campaign in new and and uh, exciting ways.
0: I love that. Can I tell you about how I see the future playing out for media buying?
1: I wish you would. Do I need to get the tinfoil hat again? I've got it right oh, here. Oh yeah, I don't-
0: grab <laughs> grab your tinfoil hat. I got mine right here. There you okay. I do see AI as a animal like a dog that is capable of providing value but is also capable of danger. And that's why we have dogs on a leash and we don't just like let them like go wherever if it's like a big dangerous dog. And I think that AI will always have a leash where it will have to maybe ask you for Uh, to do something big, you know, you let it do the little things, but then Mm -hmm. when it comes to something bigger, something that could hurt something as a leash, where you have the ability you have a little bit of leverage over it. Mm -hmm. And I think that it will be like, it will have its own autonomy to a certain degree. And you will be able to guide it and say, you know, more of this, less of that. And, I think that the one piece... I I also think that execution is going to be very, very targeted. I think Mm -hmm. that it's possible that it will be a one-to-one because of the scale that AI can think at. When you think about... like Currently, it's all people. And people... We can't grasp thousands of different motivations and demographic combinations. We need it to be simple so we simplify audiences and you know some some businesses it's like two three uh, three key audiences and then like three million people falling into those three audiences and so it's better than it was the spray and pray where it would be one message to everybody but now it's it's like it's slightly better, but I think that it will be like an order of magnitude or multiple orders of magnitude more personalized in the future. Mm-hmm. It's possible that AI can generate an image, creative, copy, sure. launch it for a, every zip code, mm. every single one it can have its own, and or or every household, depending on the level of geofencing you can do, geotargeting, sure, and it can. It can understand the data about all of those different regions, whether it's weather, whether it's interests, whatever it is, it can suck up Mm -hmm. all the data and actually process it. And that's something that we just can't really do without having some kind of a model, like a a very advanced AI model. So I think that's going to be a big uh, impact um, and change to the way we buy media. And I'll pause there. I'm curious what your thoughts are.
1: I I think that's you're hitting the nail on the head with a lot of how media is is going to evolve because that's a lot of the way that it's bought today. I, there are a lot of articles, a lot of thought leadership around. Don't develop audiences. Put a pixel on your website. Figure out who is coming to your your site or who is buying your product, and and go directly to them. One to one digital marketing is is becoming something that I think as as an industry uh, is becoming more and more of a uh, highlight something kind of that, that, uh, city upon a hill to, to work towards, um, that the industry wants to move in. I think where we're going to see a massive change in the next five to 10 years alongside AI though, is obviously, you know, it's, it's been a hot topic. I will continue to be is online privacy. Um, it's something that will is ongoing right now with some of the, the news media and, and things that are coming out. Um, but I think we're going to have to answer the question sooner rather than later is it okay for someone to be selling personal data if that someone is an AI? Is it different because it's not a person? Um, Is it different that I can know your name, phone number, address, email, what have you, as long as it's not, uh, you know, Grayson managing your campaign, it's whatever AI algorithm that I'm leveraging on my platforms. And I think that's a question that the industry and Heck, maybe Congress is going to have to answer sooner rather than later before we can get to that point, because, you know, uh, you mentioned geofencing in there, for example. Look at how much the, the entire advertising world was rocked by uh, iOS 14.5, that update that um, whenever you download a new app and open it for the first time on, uh, on Apple devices, it asks you whether the app can track you. Um, a lot of shops lost a lot of their ability to target uh, anyone with an iPhone overnight when that update came out and uh, and it's still something that's affecting the industry so there are I, I think in a silo um, and and watching as AI is evolving, I think you're absolutely right but it's really those outside factors that are going to limit what we're able to do from immediate perspective and and probably rightfully so. I think there is going to be a push especially for smaller shops and especially for, uh, anyone buying outside of the walled gardens, uh, the walled gardens meaning, you know, um, uh, companies or or media entities that have personal first party data on users um, and do not allow any data out uh, from that. Uh, so Facebook is the classic example, or I should say Meta, um, or Google is is another big one. There's any number of walled gardens that you can kind of pick on there, but I, I think you're going to see a lot of those walled gardens continue to grow at massive rates because very soon, depending on where privacy goes, they may be the only way that you can reach some of these users, as opposed to, like you mentioned, the spray and pray approach. At a certain point, when uh, what what is the crossover to when you're just buying essentially digital billboards as opposed to real life ones? Um, because you're not exactly sure what users you're, you're targeting. So it's definitely, there's going to be a shift and it's exciting to see how quickly uh, the technology is advancing. But I, I think there is a certain amount of legislature that it needs to catch up to some of that and it is trying to catch up even now. Um, so uh, definitely yeah. something to, to consider as we look towards the future of media buying.
0: I love that. And I, I think privacy is such an interesting question in this yeah. new world where AI can understand individuals in an anonymized way. like. <laughs> it can give everybody an anonymized code and nobody knows the code and the encryption key besides the AI. So it doesn't have any PII where you know who the person is. So it can have this sort of omniscient ability Mm. uh, and, and perspective over all the individuals you can market to that we can't have, uh, you know, because they're inside walled gardens, because the fidelity of the data is often not that uh, precise. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're always told with the data that we're buying, it's accurate at a high level. But, right. you know, if you ask, hey, what about my data? You want to give me my data and see how good it is? They're like, right. uh, you know, <laughs> we prefer not to give a specific right. example. So, um. I, I do think there's there's like enhanced data quality is going to improve the uh, predictability and, and the efficacy of marketing. I think that that's another big change we'll see. I, I
1: think you're absolutely right. Um, I don't have a link handy, but uh, one of my favorite exercises for anyone listening, I, I insist that you Google this because it's a great time. Um, I, I had a link to uh, show me what one of my third party vendors um, had as far as what my data was under. It was actually through a, a third party itself and pulling what it was under. And I learned that I own several cars. Uh, they span. Spend- <laughs> Um, I have every kind of pet, including exotic birds. I, there is a lot of the fidelity is is a big question mark, even with you know these these trusted maybe that needs to go in air quotes uh, trusted third party data partners that are keen off of what you're looking at online and and trying to match that back to the user ID like like you mentioned. I guess I've been googling a lot of exotic birds, but um, <laughs> beyond that, I. Uh, I think it is very interesting to, to see how AI will make some of that data more accurate and how that will track back to to actual user behavior, both uh, online and, and potentially offline. I think we'll see also in the, the next five to 10 years, a much closer relationship between, uh, you know, brick and mortar retail point of sale um, uh, metrics and data points and connecting those back, attributing those to, to digital campaigns and user IDs online. and And I think there's going to be a, a big change in that space as we're able to connect those dots a little bit more, um, I think the challenge will continue to be how do you keep it anonymized? How do you separate the the user from the user's behavior and uh, and making sure that you're in compliance with those laws um, uh, and avoiding that PII? So it's definitely a lot of interesting stuff that's going to be happening over the next, next few years as we start to Continue to advance with the technology and and start to look at what the future of media buying is really going to look like in a, I guess a post Chat GPT world since it made such an impact uh, uh, as far as AI in the mainstream. So,
0: yeah, it, it just imagine the the algorithm or the AI can read the data. It's it's probably going to be pay to play, and so sure. it can read the data from other people who are advertising. And I think it will eliminate the profit margin that Meta currently has, that Google currently has, where you have, you know, your first $500 you spend on the platform, you're going to completely waste because you just don't know what you're doing and they don't make it easy. They'll give you recommendations but those recommendations aren't necessarily going to improve your business because their algorithms aren't that finely tuned and they don't really deeply understand what you need. But if you had an AI that understood the context of what you were trying to sell and it was more advanced than the current recommendation algorithms and it had data on what was actually working for other people and it could base its recommendations off of that, Mm -hmm. no more profit margin from people messing up their ad buying. And I think that's going to lower the profitability of advertising distributors, because that's mm-hmm. such it's got to be like at least 20 percent mm-hmm. of their profit margin. is just people not knowing what they're doing and just advertising in the wrong place. And then, they, oh, I wasted a bunch of money there. I'll turn that yep. off. Like I, hopefully that lessens over time.
1: I, I completely agree. I mean, it's something we run into on a daily basis uh, on the digital buying side. And, uh, you know, uh, I think Meta is always going to be the best example uh, because they are so clandestine about the way that their media is run, how they're targeting users um, and how they they kind of consider or silo ads or, or different uh, interest segments into uh, bucketing those for, for specific user IDs. Um, I do think that uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And that is a solution that I think people in the industry have been working on for some time. I think the question then becomes, what's in it for Meta to include that? Why would they allow that within the walls of their garden if they are the the holding the keys to the kingdom as it stands right now? I think Meta, when you think about too big to fail is a, a phrase that gets thrown around especially in the finance world uh and things of that nature but it's absolutely true in the advertising space too the difference is when you say too big to fail it has less to do with the dollar figures and a lot more to do with the people that are on those platforms whether you like it or not facebook is the largest social media in the world and that probably isn't going to change anytime soon and that's before you start considering that. Instagram is also a meta platform. All of that data gets filtered in the same platforms as well. So I hope that what you described is something that will come to pass soon. Um, Somehow I I don't think Meta will be very excited to include that into their platform, nor will any of the other walled gardens uh, because that's their key advantage is the thing that has made them so influential in the space. Um, But uh, I think uh, the other piece of that is the the sheer willingness of a lot of companies, a lot of even agencies, to burn that five hundred dollars. Um, sure, five hundred dollars is is just the the entrance fee to get into the platform, really, and then it'll key off of the the uh, you know conversions or the metrics that I want to key off of, and we'll get smarter and it'll improve as the as the campaign goes on. Um, so uh, I hope that what you described is, is what's going to come to pass. It'll just be interesting to see how some of the wall gardens especially uh, react to some of that technology as it becomes available to the public.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I hope that they can't stop it. I don't think they'll be able to. I think the technology has a way of disrupting monopolistic forces. And I think we are seeing a sort of monopoly f- effect with walled gardens.
1: I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think the biggest thing to keep in mind there as well is social media gets a lot of the attention because it's social media. It's so prevalent. Um, nearly every user that that can support social media is on it uh, in some form or fashion. But the, the biggest space is always going to be programmatic. The open web is always going to be larger than social media. Um, and that is where I think, you know, a lot of media uh, uh, entities, agencies, what have you, will be able to take advantage of it there. And maybe we'll we'll see kind of a um, anti-social uh, uh, renaissance, getting away from the social medias that have, have kind of been uh, the, the go-to for any kind of ad campaign uh, in the past where you know that you're going to hit a certain segment of users uh, when you you jump onto those platforms. Maybe as the technology becomes more advanced and we become more uh, knowledgeable about the users that we're targeting on the open web, or you we can get a better through line into their behaviors and how they interact with ads, I think that might be where there's a huge opportunity to see a bit of that that renaissance, that shift in mindset to, to leveraging these tools. but. Um, I guess time will tell, uh, but, uh, it is good to see that, um, you know, the privacy conversation is continuing to evolve and, and to your point, you know, the, the new technologies that are becoming available do have a tendency to topple the, the monopolies, uh, in the, uh, in the space. So hasn't happened to Facebook yet. Um, hasn't happened to Meta yet, but, uh, you know, it certainly could, uh, as these conversations continue to evolve and, and move forward.
0: You mentioned you know sort of removing social media as a renaissance i deeply hope that we as a society shift our consumption habits of social media i know for myself it's a constant struggle something that helps me is focusing on output rather than input so i like social media but i like sharing knowledge more i like you know using the platform for you know, in a way that actually helps me rather than a way that takes away my time. I think there's it's a crazy amount of what you could call like success porn or motivation. Gar- it's just garbage. It's just people who are like, I work harder than you. Do you want to work hard? Like, like this post. Sure. And it's, it's like, that did nothing for any of the people that liked it, you know, it. It's almost the opposite. It trains you to be dependent on motivation sure. from these people who they they're not stuck scrolling on social media. Right. They they are out there doing things that matter that are actually like like that that bring them success. They're this the yeah. social media piece is actually after the sure. the part that's bringing them the success. And that so I don't know what's gonna happen, but I know that there needs to be some disruption to, to the way that social media is consumed. And speaking of that, before you, uh, before we hopped on, we were, we were mentioning TikTok, yeah. uh, and I'm curious what, what your take is on this platform. I mean, it's it's an effective platform in terms of driving engagement. Advertisers yeah. have every reason to consider it as a way to advertise, but in terms of the data, being shared, it's a little bit questionable. So I'm curious what your take is on that as a marketer, but also just as like a as a citizen.
1: Sure. Um, so I am but a humble media buyer. Uh, so don't ask me anything crazy about the data and analytics and everything they're passing back and forth, because I'll just go cross-eyed on this call. But I think from from a media buyer's lens um, and, and from my own personal viewpoint, um, TikTok, obviously, you know, as the the news continues to evolve, we we hear more about the data that they're able to share, the data that they're collecting, and especially, you know, the one of the big pieces of that has been the data that they're, they're collecting uh, people under eighteen of of minors uh, that are jumping on and using the platform. Um, obviously, a lot of negativity there. There is uh, a lot of data that's being collected in a way that. Really, probably is not very uh, straightforward. Is not very uh, transparent, and uh, and they're you know in some cases making a profit on, on users that are just unaware um, that 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 is what's going on. Um, but I think the challenge with TikTok is you could levy that same argument against almost any social media that exists today. I think uh, one of the, the pieces that we were chatting on on TikTok was um, the congressional hearings that happened this past week. Um, and, you know, it, it was very interesting. I, I listened into the congressional hearings and um, I think I heard in a five minute space the word China said about 40 times. Uh, and I think if TikTok's an American company like a meta, then maybe this is a different conversation because you could really levy the same uh, uh, kind of critiques or, or things of that nature against any social media that is based in the States. I think now that we have a social media that is based out of a foreign entity, um, it becomes a very different conversation for American advertisers, or at least for American politics as it stands. Um, so I I think there's, you know, it's a twofold answer. Obviously I, I feel strongly that, um, privacy should be respected and it, it should always be you know, clearly communicated how that data is going to be used. And if you're going to sell data, if you're going to leverage that for advertising, you have to make users aware of that. Um, and if they still want to move forward, they don't mind you using their data. Great. But you need to do the due diligence and, and you know, follow the law, follow uh, just good moral practice uh, and uh, and treat them with respect in, in that regard. But the other part of it is also you know this is not a, a a single issue from one company um this is not something that is a, a challenge for just one part of the space um we didn't bring this up but one other uh, interesting thing to mention is uh over the past couple of weeks there was a, a big suit uh fired or excuse me a complaint fired by the ftc against BetterHelp, uh the online therapy app uh and uh they were fined over seven million dollars and restricted on the data that they could provide And uh, some of the headlines had mentioned, oh, BetterHelp is selling their users' data. They're doing this. They're doing that. It wasn't the reality of the situation. When you dug in, they did is take user data that they had collected uh, from from users that opted in the platform and handed it over to media partners and said, go target people that look like this. That's a fairly standard media practice to take current consumers, look at a model of what those users' behaviors are, and then go find others like them. But there's a lot of different privacy concerns that go along with that. First of all, if you're a, a healthcare, uh, a service, like a BetterHelp is there are much, much more strict laws that go into that. You're, you're almost talking HIPAA as much as you are talking any kind of privacy law within advertising. But, um, also, you know, there are safe ways and, and anonymous ways to translate that data over that not everyone is following in the space social media is just as guilty as as a better help or as any other advertiser or media company that that leverages data in that way, there's just a respectful and, and proper way to, to go about that. And uh, if the companies aren't following that procedure, then they deserve to to be fined or I, maybe in TikTok's case be banned, uh, since that is what's being thrown around with these congressional hearings. So um, certainly a lot to think about. But If uh, if TikTok is guilty, I think you can you can punish them for it. But there are a lot of other companies that you could punish for the same thing. So I I would like to see that be a little bit more universal in the space, at least from a citizen perspective. So media buyer will probably regret saying that out loud, but uh, it's worth uh, it's worth throwing out there. There is a respectful way to to go about it.
0: Yeah, there is a inverse set of motivations between yourself and and myself as a citizen versus as a marketer because you benefit tremendously from data that is um that that tells you sort of what somebody's motivations are what they're going to do what they're interested in these are the creepiest kinds of data that there is the creepier the more effective it tends to be and that's not that's not good from a motivation setup perspective because okay. you, you basically have an industry that is vying for more and more data, more predictive data, right? And you know, at what point does the technology for marketing become the technology for a minority report sort of situation where you're no longer predicting a buy, you're predicting a crime? I mean, how different really is it? You know, if if I could see somebody bought a shovel and some duct tape, <laughs> you know, and I have a way to put them in an audience that is like ready, not ready to buy, but ready to commit a crime. I mean, I could just see that. We, we, we're, we're so close to it. We already have all of the paths built. It's just being used in a capitalist way, which, you know, is like, okay, I, follows the rules but it's dangerous it's it's dangerous in in terms of build using building an entire industry on on the usage of this very intimate data about people that i I feel like doesn't get talked about enough you know it's it's something that like we're like eh, it's creepy you know so we we don't really talk about it
1: (laughs) sure i it's a good point i think there's a couple of things that go into that, um, because obviously it's something that uh, uh, from a media perspective we deal with constantly when it when it comes to targeting audiences, both from planning and buying perspective, you know, that falls very squarely into our, our kind of realm and, and our purview. Um, and I, I think about it in two ways. I think the first thing is the sheer volume of data. There are so many different data points, and I mentioned my third-party audience uh, provider that that thinks I own 19 cars and my exotic bird. Um, I, uh, you know, that data is there's so many different data points throughout the web that so much of it gets buried, and so much of there's so little of it, I should say, is actually tied back to your name. For example, is there ways to do that? Absolutely, and and there are there are 1984 versions of this. I can also say I have never known anyone to have to take advantage of those. I think that is not something that that we deal with very often in the space. Um, and uh, and the sheer volume of data really kind of benefits the, the anon- uh, anonymity of the user uh, in a lot of different ways. So um, I think about it in terms of that. The other piece that I think is, um, I think we will continue to see a, a more robust, obviously, uh, legislation around privacy, like I already mentioned, but I think we'll start to see a lot more in the way of opting in, I think you're going to start to see users that are are able to opt in, even uh, maybe in different degrees, maybe I'm comfortable with you using my, um, you know, anonymous data that shows that I googled my exotic birds, or maybe it will will be a another layer where yes, you can use my name, my, my phone number, my email address, what have you um you know there are uh, certainly aspects to to the space and to being able to target individual users that that sound very very scary especially outside looking in and i think you make a good point about you know a lot of those pieces are already in place for us to be able to to target users but i mentioned that um you know media is is one part mass psychology and it's a pretty big part you are talking to masses Vol- the Digital campaigns are volume campaigns, almost in every case, you know, when I'm placing a programmatic campaign, I'm assuming that I'm going to serve at least hundreds of thousands of impressions, uh, hundreds of thousands of ads, if not millions. Um, And I'm not evaluating every single user or every single segment that is within that, that is just not something it doesn't benefit me. It doesn't benefit our our client or ultimately the success of the campaign. So there's certainly concerns around privacy. Uh, and, and keeping users data private and making sure they can, they're only communicating what they're comfortable communicating. Um, but at the same time, I think it's something to keep in mind, media buyers don't care that your name is associated with certain browsing habits. It doesn't matter that you're on my email list. For example, I don't, I don't really care that your email is associated with this user action. All I care about is making sure that I'm putting relevant ads in front of the right audience. One thing that uh, we didn't chat on yet, but I think is worth uh, uh, talking about is waste. Ad waste is obviously a very big topic in the space, uh, uh, in media and in advertising in general. Um, but one thing that I always think about with waste is only the only time an ad is completely wasted, the only time I consider it a, a complete uh, a miss or something along those lines is if a user is physically incapable of taking advantage of whatever you're promoting. Uh, for example, if I am serving an ad to someone in New Zealand for a car wash down the street from me in Kansas City, that is a wasted ad. No one's, He's not going to, he or she is not going to take advantage of that ad uh, or that offer or what have you. But the way I think about digital advertising is, again, that mass psychology. It's, it's a matter of not necessarily getting someone to buy in that moment. It is a matter of, I want you to think of this brand name or this product the next time you need it. So it's not necessarily I want you to go take this action and I need you to to go do this uh, right in the moment when you see an ad. It's really just keeping that brand name in mind, keeping that product name in mind. And hopefully you do take an action in that moment. But if you don't, that's still a valuable ad to me. That's just adding on to your familiarity with whatever we're we're, whatever messaging we're trying to get across. Um, So I do think that's also worth bringing up as far as the privacy conversation goes of the media buyers and, and the people behind the ads that are, are um, you know, uh, placing them and, and making sure that they're in front of you at the right place at the right time, aren't necessarily concerned with who you are and you making a purchase right in this moment, because that the campaigns are typically long running projects. Obviously, there are going to be other examples of, of things that are much more targeted, much more specific. If I had a Billion dollar mansion that I had to sell. Maybe I'm just getting a copy of the Yellow Pages, and we're going to start in there. I don't think that I using mass mass media, uh, digital media campaign is probably going to effectively hit the few people that could afford my billion dollar mansion. Um, but you know, uh, as a whole, for for most users or most people off the street, I think that is something to keep in mind whenever you're you're considering digital media is. You are one of many, many millions, uh, or at least thousands, in almost every digital ad campaign, and it's not something that is uh, a one-to-one piece of media. Like I think it gets talked about when privacy uh, comes up in in different conversations.
0: Yeah, that's that's really powerful. Um, I'm curious how that will evolve, but definitely agree that from a from the uh prospect's perspective it seems more individualized than it really is at least in the current yeah. state and I, I don't know if it will be like that forever i think it's possible we'll have more direct you know at least in uh, direct marketing for example you know we it is like a one you know to one person thing like you you can you can customize you know even the name that is it's being addressed to. You can make it dear neighbor, you could make it blank family, you could make it nothing, you could make it their name. So there's ways to sort of simulate and show that there is a one-to-one sort of relationship. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not uh not very uh it's not really the case that that people are being selected and and that from the marketer's perspective it, it exactly matters, you know, who they are. It's it's needs, messaging and Sort of uh, just sort of being reminded gently uh, every so often that that the brand exists.
1: Absolutely. I I shouldn't say that one-to-one marketing doesn't exist today. You're absolutely right. I think it's more one-to-one marketing doesn't happen with all of the data points and all of your browsing habit. I don't imagine that before you send out a piece of direct mail with someone's name on it, that you're also putting their, you know, internet search history on the back. Right. It's not something that we're we're looking at, and the, the same is true in the inverse for digital media. I, I don't know the names of the people that I'm targeting, but uh, I hope that they've been you know uh, siloed into the segment I'm targeting for a reason, and uh, you know that's uh, that's a little bit of where the the uh, difference lies. I think when most users think about it, they think about themselves and their own habits, and going, oh no, my data is out there. People are going to associate my browsing habits or, or my you know, embarrassing pictures that I've posted on Facebook with uh, with my user or myself, and it's just not the case, uh, or at least it's not for uh, the the vast majority of uh, media buying and across the board.
0: I love that. I think that's a it's a simultaneously terrifying but also somewhat comforting note. Well,
1: that's what <laughs> it's all about.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, I think this is a great note to end on. Grayson, I'll have to have you on again soon. Thank you so much for joining.
1: Of course, I'd love to. Thanks so much for taking the time. Awesome.
0: Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon.